0: All right. Well, we're going to come at a topic today, and my guess is next time too that uh, <clears throat> has some pretty significant theological aspects to it, some pretty significant psychological aspects to it, um, and so it's it's um, and it's an important topic that we are facing every single day in the United States right now. And so I want to I want to come at it from a um, a couple of things that that my my own like first let 's I want to define the issue and then um, build towards what I think is really going on in some of this, but um so the question is um, as we 're dealing with and and facing and discussing conversations about things like sex and attraction and gender and that kind of stuff, I, I want to define this first um, and and help us so one of the things that that um we really as Christians are kind of famous for is is um doing what Peter did, um, you, if you were here when Paul spoke a couple of weeks ago um, on Sunday morning, we, he and I were, and, and the, the senior pastors were, um, at the beginning of each of our meetings, we read a chapter of the Bible and discuss it to open up our meetings, and, and we're in Mark, and we're in the section of the transfiguration, and, uh, and it's the section where we just read through the, the part where it says that, G, that Peter didn't know what to say. Um, that didn't keep him from saying something, he just didn't know what to say. Like, that's, it says, he said, we ought to build three booths, one for each of you. And then Mark, who probably, as we, just, as we studied for well over a year, who was probably Peter's note taker, says, Because Peter didn't know what to say. So he spoke. That's what we do. And as Christians, we're kind of famous for that. Um, for a long, long time, we have a reputation for um, jumping to conclusions, speaking before we've actually thought, even from our own perspective. Um, and so, that's how we get involved in things like the Crusades, you know, a thousand years ago. That's, that's how we get involved in, you know, um, uh, perse- persecuting people for saying that the earth rotates around the sun, which happened, you know, a few hundred years ago. Is because as Christians, we often respond quickly based on what we think is true, and we don't stop to think, okay, maybe, maybe what I think is true isn't true. So anytime we learn something, and it seems to be in conflict with Scripture... At least one of two things is wrong. Either what we're learning is wrong, or the way we understand Scripture is wrong. Now, you're never going to hear me say, Scripture is wrong, but you will hear me say, the problem is not going to be God's Word breathed into a written form. It's going to be the fact that we keep reading it and giving our opinions on it. And so we make mistakes all the time. And so every time throughout history when something comes up, and as Christians often we respond without any real consideration of what the Bible actually says, and that's how we end up getting in trouble. Um, uh, For example, one of the topics I'd love to discuss before we're done with the semester, maybe I'll get to it, maybe not, is the theology of race. Um, Well, especially here, where we are here in East Texas, it's amazing to me how many beliefs we as Christians have about race and racial issues and people will say it's in the Bible, but it's, it's just not there at all. Like, like the, the concept. So, when I spoke to the Mentoring Alliance, their chapel recently, and talked through the, the theology of race to them, and they're, they're I mean, they, they represent, there's about 30 of them, they represent every different race, which is a misnomer that we shouldn't be called races, um, but every different ethnic background there. And when I get done, and one of the African American guys there is like, I, how come I never heard any of this? Like, he said, I will be honest with you, until today, I thought I was a rebel member of the white man's religion. He's like, that is what I have been, ra- Christianity is the white man's religion, and, and as a black man, I am, I am, because of the generosity of the white man, I am allowed to be a part of his white man's religion. And I'm like, well, just so you'll know, like, I think you can make the case that the ethnicity of Caucasian was the last of the races to catch on to the whole Christian thing. Like, that's something we totally miss. And, and yet we have this, I mean, you, you may have been raised with like the mark of Cain, for example, was that God turned Cain black. Did, did any, of you, any of you raised with that? Like, and that just makes no sense at all. Like, I don't, mean, I don't mean any sense like genetically or something. It makes no sense biblically that that would be the mark on Cain because, that's not when race is divided in the Bible. That's not when ethnicity is divided in the Bible. Remember, the, the, according to the Bible, they get funneled back down to one family again after that. So the, the Mark of Cain would be absolutely irrelevant to today's ethnic backgrounds because you'd still have to funnel them all through Noah, right? I mean, so, but it's amazing how often you hear stuff like that. And so we do that. Well, one of them was a few years ago, and, and I'll just recommend I'd love for this to be a church that responds differently to this. Some of you will remember when it came out, that there were some studies done that indicated there's a genetic predisposition for homosexuality, right? You guys remember that? And, and so what was the, what was the general... But before, and we, we even react too quickly, we had the same reaction to the Big Bang. Um, you remember when the Big Bang... Some of you are old enough, to remember, you know, 1950s, 60s, when the Big Bang theory first released? Um, atheist physicists were terrified of the Big Bang when they realized that essentially there was nothing, and then all of a sudden there was something, and it was expanding extremely quickly. And, and the more they've learned about it, the more it has gotten closer and closer and closer to absolutely nothing that st- became something and expands at a rate that is unthinkable by our stand- Like, And yet, what was, the, what was the Christian response immediately to the Big Bang theory? We were like, oh, no, no, that's i oh, see those scientists, they're just like, that was the, was across the board was Christians took this stance against the Big Bang. The reason physicists were so scared of the Big Bang theory was they thought all the Christians, Hindus and Muslims and Jews were going to rub their faces in it. They were going to go, hey, kind of like there was nothing and then all of a sudden there was something and all the Christians were going to go like, we've been telling you that all along. There was nothing and then someone spoke it into existence and then there's something. There was this huge kind of, Community sigh of relief across the atheist scientific world when Christians responded negatively to the Big Bang, rather than going, right, right, yeah, that's what that's what our book says happened. There was nothing, and then there was suddenly something. Like, right, glad y'all are catching on. That would have been the, that would have been the appropriate Christian response. So when we remember, so there's a genetic predisposition for homosexuality, accord allegedly. And by the way, the studies would indicate that there probably is something of a predisposition for some people who end up in the homosexual lifestyle. So, of course, Christians came out before the atheists could respond, um, the, the, and the anti-Christian. We came out and declared God would not make someone gay, right? That was the big Christian response. Well, we know that's not true because God wouldn't make someone gay. Um, so what's... what's you, may ever, you may ever heard of the doctrine of original sin ever heard of that? I hope you have. That's the one that says that all human beings are born sinful. All human beings. From Adam. That after Adam, every human being since him was born sinful. Apparently, except for homosexuality. Do you see how the idea that there would be a genetic predisposition to something that the Bible calls sin would be something that Christians should say, right, yeah, we said that. There's a genetic predisposition to all sin. We're, we're born sinful, prone to wander, selfish, egocentric. Why would this be the one magical thing? And then, then the argument that the other side makes was, is if someone was born with a predisposition, that should allow them to behave however they want to. What, what possible sense does that make? I mean, none, right? Ethical, ethical decision-making has nothing to do with what your, even your inborn desires would be. If, if, I, if I think having sex with women is awesome, that doesn't give me permission to just do that, right? There's still ethical decision-making about that too. Drives and interests and desires and attractions have no bearing on, on moral and ethical decision-making. None. And so we as Christians have got to learn to speak about these things intelligently rather than having a knee-jerk response to realize like, well, yeah, of course... That we are the last people to be surprised their genetic predispositions for sin we would be the last people to go like wait you're saying people are born tempted to sin uh uh-uh. uh no way like right our book says that it said that all along that's, the, that's a good response so let's talk about this whole gender, this gender issue let's, let's get some basics out of the way so let me help you with this so let's listen this is the terminology we're going we're gonna to come at this with the first terminology we're going to use is, is the word sex I'm not talking about the behavior here. I'm talking about the male-female sex, okay? Your sex, I know for some of you, you already know this. Your sex is determined by your XY chromosome situation, okay? It's, it's, you had nothing to do with it. You had no say. You got no vote. And this is one of the problems that our modern-day culture is dealing with in regards to sex, is that they didn't get to decide it. And that's not fair. That, and I'm not kidding. One of the things, so postmodern thinking, we have three basic metaphysical viewpoints philosophically throughout history. They're very creatively named. Um, pre-modern, modern, postmodern. Okay. No one knows what the next one's gonna be. Like everybody's waiting for like, what are you gonna name? The next one. This ought to be interesting. Post post-modern. Um, so here's one of, there's lots of tenets, and I could spend weeks and weeks teaching on the philosophy, the metaphysics of these, I'm not going to, I'm going to tell you about one of them, the pre-modern belief, the pre-modern metaphysic, a metaphysic is what it means to be in existence in this universe, life, the universe, and everything, right? To quote Douglas Adams. So that's what a metaphysic is. What does it mean to exist? What is existence about? What is the universe existing about? So that's, that's the question of the metaphysic. The, modern, the pre-modern metaphysic, which was around until somewhere plus or minus around the, the, the Renaissance era around there, said, among many things, but I'm going to focus on one tenet, and that is, there's an external source for everything. Everything has an external source, external of humanity, value, purpose, life. Meaning, all of that has an external source. It all came from somewhere else. Plato's cave of, of foundational fundamentals. Everything has an essential thing, which we talked about last a few times ago. So that's these are so fate is the most famous example of a pre-modern metaphysical understanding. Fate. Even the decisions I make have an external source. It's not me, it's fate. And the more... Anybody remember reading Oedipus? Right? So the story of Oedipus... What, what, is the, what is the moral to the story of Oedipus? Oedipus the king. What's the moral of the story? And the more you try, the more you certainly are fated, right? It's like the... the there you cannot escape your fate. That is the message of that story. No matter what you do, you will only guarantee the fulfillment of your fate. We don't, we don't do that well. Understand that for the pre-modern and the Jewish culture, the Old Testament is a pre-modern writing. A um, pre, very deeply pre-modern. There's an external source for Everything. So for you, you're offended when you read that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. That's offensive to you and me. Well, that doesn't hardly seem fair to harden someone's heart and then punish them for having a hardened heart. That doesn't seem fair. But understand that to the pre-modern, of course God hardened his heart. That's the only person who could have hardened his heart. Pharaoh had no power to harden his own heart. That's his fate. That was his purpose. God purposed, he created Pharaoh to be a bad example so that he could crush him in such a way that everyone could see it. For the pre-modern, that's not like shocking or weird or anything. That's right. Is there another way to think about it? They had no other way to think about it. Um, that today, there's still a pre-modern culture left. Um, and, and even in the modern world. You might know what it is. I'll give you a hint. The phrase, inshallah, which means as Allah wills it. Islam is a pre-modern metaphysic. Islam does not believe they choose things. If you're a Muslim, you don't choose things. Allah does. Um, I may have told you before, it was one of the most shocking. To see that actually lived out was shocking for me in Egypt a decade ago watching people cross the road without looking when in a city of 20 million people none of whom knew how to drive they would drive on a four-lane highway seven across and and they drive with their left pinky I'm not I'm not kidding like I sit here in the back of a cab they drive with their left pinky because their right hand is for the horn and the other fingers are for the lights like this the whole time they drive and of course, being brought up in a postmodern world, I was taught to say, I remember, in six, I remember very distinctly, Ms. Henderson's sixth grade um, social studies class, that we, we looked at the woman with all the rings around her neck from Africa like this. And I remember saying out loud, that's weird. Have we talked about this? And I said, I said, that's weird. And Ms. Henderson said, that's not weird. It's just different the same way you were raised to say that. We're all taught as little parrots to say that. That's not weird. It's different. So I say to my friend, "Well, at least this works." I mean, at least this works for them, right? I mean, this is that's not weird. It's just different. He'd lived there two years at that point. He said, "Oh no, they die like rabbits doing this." He's like, "They, they die left and right. Hundreds of them a day die in car accidents this way." Every he said when it was dark. He said, "The next tomorrow, when you get up, every single car you see will be covered with dents. They all are. They run into each other constantly." So he trained me how to cross roads because if you look and make eye contact with the driver, they now know you see them and they're not going to stop. So your only hope is to just step into traffic and hope they don't hit you. Muslims don't hope they don't hit you. Whether they get hit or not has absolutely nothing to do with their decision making. If it's their time, they're going to die. There's nothing to do about it. Inshallah, as Allah wills it. They actually... And what's amazing is, I mean, we have... You know, we have Reformed theology. We have Calvinists in America. But no one lives like a Calvinist. No one, no one lives as though they have no say in their life, as if God is... They all, all the Calvinists I know wear their seatbelts, right? I mean, it's like, what difference does it make? It was ordained before the beginning of time, which day I would die. We, we, we even the most pre-modern that we get in Christianity today is still very modern by pre-modern standards. But in... But the, but in, 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 in the Middle Eastern version of Islam. They actually practice a pre-modern culture. So when I asked my friend, I was like, well, does that work for them? Just walking out in traffic like that? And he's like, oh, they die in droves. It was every single day. Dozens of people step out in front of traffic and get nailed. And, and the guy gets out of his car and sees who he nailed. And if they're dead, and the family all gathers around. And then he leaves because, inshallah. It's like, I, I will I will never fit in in this culture. Like, I will never, I would, I, my brain won't do it. Yes? I just have to share, I mean, I haven't been there, but I, I I, did surgery on someone who came from Egypt, and it was a long story why he came here, but one of the reasons he said he wanted his surgery in America was basically that exact, exact if something happens with surgery, God's will. Yeah. Yeah, so he was saying, like, uh, he had somebody come to America to get surgery because surgeons... In Egypt, have the same attitude. If something goes wrong in surgery, oh well, it must have been Allah, what Allah wanted, right? It was their time. Yeah, not even my bad. Allah is Allah's decision, right? When and by the way, to understand Islam, when they say, when a lot of people, Christians will refer to Islam as a legalistic religion. Well, I've got to follow all these rules in order to get into heaven. Understand Islam is not a legalistic religion. You follow all those rules, and Allah will absolutely, arbitrarily, based entirely on his mood at that moment, decide whether you go to heaven or hell. There's no no advantage to living it out from an an afterlife perspective, except that Allah has told told them some things will will work in your favor as I'm making that call. But that's it. Yes? Yes? Okay, so here's what here's yeah yeah so okay so Reagan is making a classic blunder here. The, the mistake that Reagan's is making is, is so you're dealing with a faith that makes no that <laughs> that takes no stance on rationality. It does not claim to be a rational faith. The fact that they have multiple views that directly contradict each other is not their problem. So you're right. It makes no sense to hold someone responsible for offending Islam when what you also say is, well, the only way they could have offended Islam is if Allah wanted that to happen. You're right. That's a contradiction, not their problem. They're supposed to punish you for doing that. So it's a strict... Now, so back to this. The modern view, which came around sometime around the... It started earlier than that. There were already moderns before that, but um, even all the way back into the Greeks, there were some moderns, but not many. Um, all the way up until the Renaissance. So the moderns moderns say there are external sources for things and there are internal sources for things. Some things come from without. Some things come from within. And that's the modern view. So according to the pre-modern view, we are nothing but creatures. In the modern view, we are creature creators. In the pre-modern view, the universe is our domain. In the modern view, the universe is our home. We have no choice about being here, but we get to pretty it up, okay? We can actually change things. There's freedom. There's such a thing as will. Um, Ulysses is the great ancient story that shows a modern being successful for the first time, which is why Tennyson writes about him, to seek, to strive, and not to yield, that, that whole concept, okay? So that's the modern view, We did not in America probably have any pre-modern presidents. Almost all of our presidents up until a certain point were pretty strongly modern. Our last... Now, now I'll also warn you, the Christian metaphysic is a little bit of a mixture. It doesn't fit any of them perfectly. The Christian metaphysic is distinct. Um, It has a lot of pre-modern features, a lot of modern features, and one or two post-modern features, but not many. So understand that in this heading, just in regards to the source... Pre-modern? the source is all external. Modern? The sum of the source is internal, some is external. And you know where I'm going with this. Postmodern, there is no external source for anything. So my Ford students who, and others who are in the room who have gone through identity training with me, certain things about your identity are bestowed. And that is offensive to the postmodern mindset. That anything is bestowed on you is unfair. I should get to choose that. After all, I am the only real source for anything about me. So, the rejection of bestowed identity is part of what's created our confusion. It is offensive to the postmodern thinker that someone else can tell you something about you and then you can be right or wrong about that thing. That is offensive. Who are you to tell me what my sex is? Now you can see the problem. If you don't believe there's an external source for anything, then who, including genetics, who is to tell me that I'm a male? Who are you to tell me that? Well, you have an X and a Y chromosome. So? Well, that's, that's what it means to be male. Says who? You see, the, you see the problem. So for the postmodern thinker, there is no bestowed identity. You can see why there's all kinds of things about Christianity that are offensive to the... And by the way, every one of us in the room are postmodern thinkers, at least somewhat. We are now... My generation was educated and raised by people who were educated... By postmoderns. So that's how that's how metaphysics change It always starts in the educational world. I mean any philosophical philosophical change starts in the educational world first, transferred to students, usually in opposition to their parents, and then on and on. So that's so my parents were educated as postmoderns, but were not raised by postmoderns. They were raised by moderns, educated by postmoderns. So I was raised by somebody educated as a postmodern, and I was, of course, educated as a postmodern. Um, that's, there's no such thing as weird. That's just different. It's not wrong, Chris. It's just different. Like, yeah, but they die doing it. Doesn't that, anyway. So most modern, most Christians today are are rather modern in our thinking. That's why we are offended by passages in the Bible where it seems like God doesn't give people a choice and yet he punishes them for it. Of course, that's offensive to us. We're modern. But for the pre-modern thinker, that was not only not offensive, it wasn't even news, I was like, well, I mean, of course, that's kind of how that works, isn't it? I mean, there's no other way to do it. So one of the things we're facing in America today is this absolute rejection of bestowed identity. Now, this won't work because it's impossible to have aspects of your identity decided by you. It's, it is impossible. This will begin to create more and more of either a psychological issue or a significant cultural crisis. At the individual level, it will continue to be a psychological issue. You never get to rest if you are the only person who can create you. If you're the only person... Isn't it interesting now that the word that is often used is... In fact, I'll just ask. What is the word? I. What what do I do when I'm trying to decide what my... I identify. Look at the identity word there. I define my own identity as Whatever. And, and that's a psychological breakdown. You don't get to define your identity about certain things. We are trying hard. We're, we're kicking against the goads on this in our culture. Um, there are people now who have decided they are lizards. And so they have tattooed themselves with scales, and they've sharpened their teeth, and they've cut their tongue in half, and they've slit their eyes, and they're doing t- because they've decided they are a lizard. And... Again, I would think the lizard community would be offended by the thought that all it takes to become a lizard is some cosmetic changes. I've been waiting for that we haven't seen. I've been waiting. This must be a huge crisis for the, those, in the, those of you who are women, especially to the degree you're in the feminist movement. I've been waiting for someone to step up and say, you don't get to be a woman by adding silicone. There's more to being a woman than silicone. That's, see, I'd love to see one of those. I'm not seeing, especially, I want to see a far left person take that stance and say, Who are you to call yourself a woman just because you had some surgery done? You don't get to be a woman that way. I do not welcome you into the sorority just because you got surgery done. You're not in. Yes. Yeah. There you, <laughs> that's right that's there's a side of that that's that you would think because there's a bestowed aspect to that identity are you male or female is a genetic fact there are a few people who are born with odd xy chromosome situations there's one type in particular it's fantastically rare Um, but what's interesting is because they, so what they end up having is two Y's and an X, no, two X's and a Y. And, um, but they actually almost always are male. Like they are male, like they, they grow and develop and everything. The other X chromosome goes silent, but they have, they tend to have more, I'm going to talk about this now, more feminine expressions at times. So let's talk about this, the word gender here for a second. Um, I apologize that we laying the groundwork I may not get to a lot of direct quoting scripture, referencing it a lot, but may not get to directly, and I apologize for that, but this is part of laying the groundwork here. Um, So, understand gender, here's where Christians are sometimes making a mistake. Sex is male or female. It is a true dichotomy. Pass, fail, it is one or the other. There is not a blending. You are male or female. Now, So when people say that they're changing their sex, they are not. Um, We don't have that power yet. We may someday. But we don't have that power. All you can change is your phenotype, not your genotype. You cannot... Genotype is what determines. Your genes are what determines male or female. You can change how you look, but you cannot change the genetics of it. And male and female is determined by genetics. This has been the case for... A lot of human history, all of it, up until recently. Now, here's what is different, and as Christians, we need to understand this. When people talk about gender, we need to be reminded that gender is a cultural construct. It is a social concept, gender. Gender is not male or female. Gender, as you understand it, and as I do, is masculine or feminine, okay, that is very culturally specific. In Scotland, it is not feminine to wear a skirt, right? If, if you think so, show up next year when Derek has his on and tell him that. Just dare you. Um, not, it's not feminine under certain heading. For, in, in Saudi Arabia, it is not feminine for a man to wear what we would call a dress. That's what men wear. That is cultural. It's a, that's a masculine or feminine. Of course, it is a continuum. It is. And we need to be okay with that. It is a continuum between masculine and feminine. There are females. Remember, that's, male or female is not a continuum. It's one or the other. Gender is a continuum. You know males who are more or less masculine. You know females who are more or less feminine. So, of course, you could have a female who is masculine. Of course, you could have that. Now, I believe that the Bible, somewhere between, instructs against doing that intentionally and at least hints against doing that intentionally in a few different places. Probably 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10 is, is one of the better examples of that. It's hard. It's a little bit tough but, because a lot of the Bibles will say effeminate. The word there, and again, it's a really tough translation because it may be referencing, it may be a, a descriptor of another word in that sentence, but the word there literally probably means cross-dresser. Now, that was a huge issue in Greece. That was in the Greek language. In Greece, cross-dressing was a big deal because, especially near Athens, Athens was the home of the goddess Athena, who was a crossdresser. She was a woman who dressed and acted like a man. She, she was into sports, and she hunted, and she wore a bob, little bob haircut, and she, she dressed like a man and acted like a man, and, and all that kind of stuff. And one of the ways you worshipped Athena in Athens was that you went and had sex with the temple prostitutes. That was true of all the different temples, but the temple prostitutes. The specificity, specifically for Athena, the way you worshipped her is you went and had sex with the cross-dressed sex. So if you were a man, you would go have sex with a boy who was dressed as a girl. And if you were a woman, you went and had sex with a girl who was dressed as a boy. And that that was how you honored Athena. Homosexual behavior is not new. Now, Homosexual lifestyle seems to be relatively new. The idea that people would identify themselves and say, I am exclusively homosexual seems to be relatively rare historically or not talked about, it's, it's, which could easily be either one. Instead, what you have is a behavior. The behavior is what's talked about. And, and not to be, um, I don't. I mean, hopefully you're not too squeamish, but literally as in there are writings in, in the Greek writings that, for example, once a boy grew hair on his legs, he was no longer fit to be a priestess, prostitute in Athena's, like there's specific rules. He had to be young enough that he had no hair on his legs. And so we would, we would call that child abuse, but that was actually one of the ways you were supposed to worship Athena, was for men to go have sex with boys dressed as girls, and So, again, none of this is is new. It was being done. You can now see why in Corinth, by the way, which is right across a little body of water from Athens, why Paul would tell them in Corinth, would tell the women, don't cut your hair short. And why he would tell the men, don't grow your hair long. Because a man who looked like a woman in Corinth was going to be thought to be a temple prostitute, not a Christian. So it makes total sense that that's why we get very clear instructions in Corinth of all places. We don't have a letter to Athens. Um, But very clear instructions to Corinth, probably why in Corinth there are so... And Corinth, by the way, was a hotbed of prostitution. Um, It was famous. Socrates bemoaned that the most expensive prostitute in Corinth, he could not afford her. Um, As wealthy as he was, he could not afford her. Um, In Corinth, there were footprints literally carved into the stone... That led you with the woman's name in them. That led you. You follow those footprints to her brothel. Um, when we we're in Betshan, um, the, the Roman city, like right there in the middle of everything, is a prostitutes' house. And it's there's a there's a mosaic on the floor that shows her. There were coins. There were prostitutes so famous in Greece that there were coins made that honored them, the prostitute. So again, this was a hypersexualized culture like ours is. Anyway, so to understand the difference between gender. So, of course, gender is a continuum. And, of course, a, a, a man or a woman or a boy or a girl can feel more or less masculine or feminine on a given day. Of course, there are days when you're like, man, the testosterone is pumping. I feel like I need to kill something or get muddy. Or something. I mean, like there are days when you feel more masculine culturally. And then there are days you feel less masculine culturally. That's not, that we should not be offended when the the media or whoever talks about feeling more or less masculine. Do you see the crisis though? The crisis is is gender or is sex what determines which bathroom you go in? Is it sex or is it gender? Well, this was never a conversation before because it's obviously sex. You have the male bathroom. And you have the female bathroom. They're even fitted for different plumbing. I don't mean the bathroom. I mean for our plumbing. Because it's not about how you feel. The bathroom was always determined by your sex, not your gender. The problem is people began to say, my gender and my sex don't match. I am a little boy, but I believe inside I am a little girl. Now, once, one of the things that's, a, that's a really problematic is that that's not uncommon for children. Children have a very rough understanding of the whole concept of boy and girl. We just told, I just told you it's a cultural concept. If we just let a whole bunch of children raise themselves, if somehow they could survive doing that, there's no telling what they would invent from a gender perspective. Gender is a cultural construct. By the way, how do you know whether you're masculine or feminine? What? Someone tells you, which is an external source, which is offensive to the postmodern. Who are you to tell me, not only am I male or female, but certainly who are you to tell me whether I am masculine or feminine? You don't get to decide that. So throughout almost all of human history, masculine and feminine was a spectrum. So one issue that we're facing is the rejection of bestowed identity an external source for anything. This is crippling to the male-female conversation. It's even more crippling to the, the idea that God bestows anything upon you. It makes it very difficult for you to accept that you are treasure, especially if you've not been treated as treasure, especially if you don't feel like treasure. How you feel about whether your treasure is irrelevant to whether or not God says you are. How I feel about there are certain things of our identity that must be bestowed upon us or we will never rest, we will never find peace, we will never find purpose, none of that, never, except that we accept that God has bestowed them on us. In many cases, maybe in every case, despite us, not because of us. This whole generation, this whole metaphysic is spinning out of control and will continue to do so because they do not accept bestowed identity. That's why it's important that we as parents are speaking identity to our children so that because they're going to get told by everybody else, no one gets to do that. The second problem that we're facing as a culture in regards to this question is masculinity and femininity has always been a a, a, a continuum along a two-point line. Masculine, feminine, right? So can you go ahead and tell me what the problem is with that? What the postmodern metaphysics says is the problem with that? No? Who says there's two? Who decided that? Who got to decide there were two? Yes, we, we should agree. There is a continuum. There is a continuum, by the way. And it, we shift in it day to day. We shouldn't be offended when we hear about that, that gender is fluid. Of course, gender is somewhat fluid... It, we can be more or less masculine or feminine. May, by the way, sex is not fluid. We to go back to that. You're either X and Y or X and X. Deal with it. But again, that's offensive. The next thing is the rejection of dichotomy thinking, which postmodernism does good, bad, black, white, um, right, left, and even more so, right, wrong. This is rejected. So who is to say there's only two? How offensive. What if I don't think I'm either one? What if I'm not on your blankety-blank continuum? Now, what you'll discover is there's, what, 51, maybe 54 different gender options on Facebook now. Now, uh what what you will see is, I went and looked through them. I was really unimpressed. They're fantastically lacking in creativity. I was so disappointed. I wanted a spectrum. That's what they claim to have now is a spectrum. What they really have is different words for being on the continuum or a rejection of the continuum, right? Kind of a D, none of the above. But a photo negative is not an identity. I'm not masculine or feminine. What's the, the problem with that is I can tell you that you are. Well, I don't know. I think you're pretty masculine. Don't tell me that, right? I mean, you're totally stuck because masculine and feminine is a cultural construct. We tell each other. I trapped this year's um, Ford students pretty good with this when I asked them to define masculinity and femininity, and they wrestled and struggled and couldn't do it, and that's because masculinity and femininity is also bestowed by culture. So when we say a man in East Texas, we are not talking about sex, are we? If you say that's a man, are you talking about sex? No, you're talking about gender. What are you saying about them? They're down at this end, right? Right? Who decides that? All the other men. <laughs> That's right, and women, right? Women. Who, if you say, "Oh yeah, that I'll, I'll pick on Bob," that Bob acts really—he's a man, right? And you say that. What, what does that? What does that mean about Bob? <laughs> okay, what did you say? Hunts fishes play, Hunts, fishes, play sports. Drives a truck, has a beard. He, he, he's one for like six there, right? Okay. Drinks beer, uh, right? Football, right? But are those are those your Nicole? Are those your definition of what it means to be a man? No. So then you wouldn't you wouldn't agree with that? No. Okay. When we actually have a funny story about when we first moved here, because cute he is not. <laughs> A real man doesn't like stories told about his masculinity either. That's one of the, <laughs> so you'll know. <laughs> so here's, here's the... But sitting out on the front porch with neighbors, We mm-hmm. you know, he hadn't been here very long. He's like, so, you know, what do you like to do for fun? And, you know, he's like, he's like, do you play football? Do you like to watch football? And he says, no. Oh, do you hunt? No. Do you fish? No. And the guy looks at him and is like, are you gay? And <laughs> but then, of course, that's not the same thing as gender. But he was sort of like, well, obviously you're not a man. Can okay. You know, fucks, fucks, or- now, here's what's interesting. So the whole conversation was, you know, hunting, fishing, sports, all that kind of stuff was the question, if you're not that. So here's, here's, here's what's important. What determines whether or not you are a man is entirely up to me. I decide whether I think you are a man. And the next person may decide that they don't think you're a man. And the next person may think you are, and the next seven may say no, and the next 15 may say yes, because it's a social construct that there becomes now. We've connected this, these different examples within it, and each of us has our own definition for these words. I say this is a man. I say that's a real woman. It is, it is bestowed at the individual level. And by the way, the only way for you to believe that you're a man or a woman is if a man who you think is a man tells you you are. That's how you'll know. So you've already decided this is a real man. When that person tells you that you're a man, then you'll begin to believe that you are. Women play a role in that too, but it does seem like men carry the the majority of the weight of defining this. When I had the same thing done with women, when we talked about this, that, okay, in order to be a man, in order for you to know you're a man, a man who you think is a man has to tell you you're a man, okay? So I said that, and, and, and all the men, when I was there studying this, and all the men were like, yes, and I said, so, the, to the women who were in the same group discussing this, so you need a woman who you think is a woman to tell you you're a woman. And every one of them instantaneously said, no, I need a man who I think is a man to tell me I'm a woman. That's really intriguing, now I don't think women are powerless in this but there's a certain apparently certain kind of weight that men seem to carry in regards to speaking this. It's a cool thing that men have that and a heavy responsibility. But understand notice I am speaking it into you and that makes me an external source which is not fair. Who am I to say? Why do you get to decide? What I'm like because I do. That's how this is done. Well, I don't, I don't think you're a man. Irrelevant. <laughs> like, I think you are. Okay. Although it's changing quickly, right? <laughs> that whole, every single, and culturally, we have cultural standards for that. Gender is. Now, what they're trying to say now is there's a spectrum. But again, like I said, it's pretty poor. The spectrum is actually mostly... Somewhere along the line, or more, most, most of them are just a rejection of the line. And so you will know now, I still won't, I won't use this word because it was a slur for so long, but the word queer now means unwilling to live on the line. Now, again, that's impossible. Now you're creating a life out of trying to not be something. And, and literally, you hear that conversation in that world. I don't wear boots. Why not? Because people will think that I'm trying to be a man. So what if you want to wear boots? Well, I don't wear them because it's like, wow. I mean, that's a, like you're stuck. Someone's going to think you're doing something, everything you do. And how do I avoid all of that is a, so now let's go back to that tiny percentage. And some people say it's, it's as high as a half of a percent, but it's probably more like a 10th of a percent of the population that claim I am this sex genetically, but I am this sex gender-wise. So my, my phenotype and my genotype don't match. And I'll tell you what I believe about that. I believe that the, psychology, the psychologists were right for the first 150 years of studying this. And that is, this is a, a version of what we call body dysmorphia. It is the same thing that anorexics have that they feel like they are fat when they are not. I don't know why an anorexic has not yet sued for the right to starve themselves to death. Who are we to tell her that she can't? This is her lifestyle. I'm waiting for the schizophrenic to sue and say, who are you to say that, that there aren't aliens beaming thoughts into my brain? That's my lifestyle. I'm a paranoid schizophrenic. I've been diagnosed that way. You don't get to tell me what's true and what's not true. And so it is interesting to watch this like we've got to keep the guns out of the hands of the schizophrenics and the depressed people. But the people who think they are one gender that doesn't fit with their sex, we need to somehow let them do whatever they need to do to fix this. And here's what we know about anxiety disorders. You don't fix them that way. And as I understand it, I'm not an expert in the results of this, but as I understand it, the suicide rates for transgender people are the same post and pre-surgery, which I would expect because it's at the root an anxiety disorder. So all of you who have whatever, one level or another of OCD, and in a population this big, there's probably six of you or more, have one degree or another of OCD. So I, depending on how serious you are, so you feel this strong, overwhelming sense of anxiety if your pencils aren't all the same height in the pencil drawer, in the pencil cup. Does getting all of them the same height fix your anxiety? Does it make it go away? Yeah, for a few seconds it does, right? And then something else gets your attention. So if, if you have the anxiety, the type of OCD that you say, I just drove through my neighborhood And you suddenly get the thought that you ran over somebody. And you think you need to better go back and look. So you go back and look and there's no one there. You didn't hit anybody. Does that take away your anxiety? No. It actually feeds your anxiety and makes it stronger the next time. When you're going off the high dive, how many of you remember this? We don't have high dives anymore. I don't know what I'm going to go to in another generation. But you're standing on the high dives and you're looking off of it. Maybe zip lines. We still have those. High dives actually posed a tiny risk, so we've gotten rid of those. Of course, <laughs> zip lines have no risk. We'll keep those around for a while. <laughs> You've never been safer since you met- left your mother's womb when you're on a zip line. Um, we build them 40 feet off the ground to give you the impression of danger. Trust me, you walking to the zip line. I worked at Pineco for eight years. I don't know how many tens of thousands of people got put off the zip lines. In that time, I was there. We had two people injured, and both of them were on the ladder getting off. It was not. <laughs> Not the zip line. They strap you in. You ain't going nowhere, Bubba. You are. They could zip line a Buick, and they would. It, there's nothing about that system that. Sorry, I get. That always cracks me up when you see people up there terrified. You're like, that's what it means to be human, right there. You have never been more safe in your entire life, and you won't push off. Like, you have more danger of dying of starvation sitting there, than you are if you will zip off. Like, it's unreal. It really is crazy. The statistics now. So, so we, what we feel versus reality are fantastically different. We feel something. What happens, you may, some of you may remember, you go up on the high dive and you look down and you chicken out and you walk off. Is it easier or harder to do it next time? Harder. And the more times you do it, eventually, about the fourth or fifth time you do it, you'll never do it. Maybe generation, maybe a decade later, you'll finally get the guts, but you won't. But if you get up there and you're terrified and your knees are like jelly and you jump, is it easier or harder next time? easier. Easier because you've learned that your body is learning from that experience. Feeding anxiety doesn't help. Taking someone who has an anxiety disorder who is obsessed on the fact that though they are a woman, though they are a female, they feel like a male. Spending tens of thousands of dollars on surgery to make them look like a male does not change their anxiety disorder. Now, I will tell you, in the midst of when they do that, they also give the people tons of anti-anxiety and anti-depression medication through the whole process. So some of them do feel better afterwards, probably because of the anti-anxiety and anti-depression medication that they've been given, not because of the surgery. I'm, I'm really convinced that we are harming an entire population of people, taking advantage of them and stealing their money because we can and, making a, 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 and and then another part of the population is making an agenda out of them to use them for their own purposes when what they are are heartbreaking. By the way, anxiety disorders are awful. They are awful, awful things to deal with. And the fact that we are not helping them but instead hurting them, it just, it just rages the fire out of me. That As a culture, we've decided to like tell them, no, it's okay to put the little foil hat on so the alien won't zip out, won't, won't drain your brain out of your head. We don't do that for schizophrenics. We, don't, we, we try to keep anorexics alive. The fact that we don't, I just, uh, it's unreal to me. And there's so much research on it that cannot now be published. But it is, all says the same things. This is a body dysmorphia issue. Um, but you're not allowed to talk about that anymore. And it's sad. When you can no longer speak the truth, your culture is in trouble. This is where we are and what we're facing what I'm going to do next time is we're going to talk about a couple of things. One, what does the Bible say about some of these things? The Bible's pretty silent on some of this, but what does the Bible say about some of these things, especially in regards to homosexuality, so you know what it actually says, and attraction issues, which are way more complicated than the world wants you to think now, um, or and what is the right response of a Christian community to people who have um, these different issues in their lives, these different attractions in their lives, these different lifestyles. What's the correct response of the Christian community? Um, which will be awesome because I am sure we will face them in different ways in our pop- in our community, in our congregation. And so for us to be prepared to respond um, the way I think the Bible would teach us to will be, especially for core leaders like this to be prepared, will be huge. So I want to pray and... Uh, Now you've got at least your brain hopefully wrapped around what the issues we're facing as a culture are and what really, now when you see them talk about it on the news, some of them will be very precise. They know exactly what they're saying. You'll hear them distinguish between sex and gender and all those things very well. No one ever teaches, no one ever explains what they mean. The sociologists and psychologists on the news, they are all using the correct terminology. The the news anchors have no idea what they're talking about. So they just, they use words interchangeably because they have no clue what they're, they never seem to have any clue what they're talking about. Y'all you know, you know Brian Houston here in town? Um, he's a good friend of mine, and he was a news anchor for a while. And I told him one time, I was like, Brian, like you, you, totally, you, you totally got this wrong this morning. Like, what you said was absolutely inaccurate. And he goes, I just read what they tell me. <laughs> so I was like, oh, well, that's how that happens. Like, he's like, I don't, I don't even see it before it comes up on the screen. I just read what comes up, whatever it says. I was like, so do you ever say things you don't agree with? He's like, all the time. I just read what they tell me. I was like... I don't think I would be successful at that. Like, and so then the news, they're like, Wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm not saying that. Like, I would <laughs> last four minutes. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much uh, for these men and women and the families they represent. Thank you for a place where we can come and talk through um, the truth. And God, that you, you actually have and give and share the truth. And we can find such freedom in the truth. Um, Lord, that that our genetics are one of the gifts you've given us. You've bestowed them on us and they are a gift and we can respond to them um, in submission and appreciation and thanksgiving even when our genetics haunt us. Even when our diseases and our predispositions and the issues that we face make our lives really, really hard. We can still be thankful for the life that you have given us even in the challenges we face. I pray that as a church, we would wrap our arms around anxious people, Um, people who have any mental challenges, whatever they are, all of us. We all face something. We all have predispositions towards sin and being broken and frailness as creatures of dust. And I pray that we would be a community where people know they will be loved despite, um, no, where we will be. We know we will be loved despite our frailties. And our issues. And um, Lord, I pray that we will know how to engage while never backing down from the truth. We want to speak the truth in love as we are called to by your word. Um, We want to share the gospel, speaking the truth, in love. God, not as contradictory concepts, but as two things that should always go together. Thank you, Lord, that we can do that because of your word and through the power of your spirit. In your son's name, amen.